HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Happy Sunday. Happy Mother's Day. And welcome to another milk, cur- milk curdling episode of Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, I'm your host, Anne Saxelby. Our producer today is Jack Insley, and our engineer is Nat Weiner. And I would like to thank our sponsor for today's show, which is none other than my mother, Pam Saxelby, who has uh, sponsored this show with her blog, How Not to Raise Effed Up Adults. How Not to Raise Effed Up Adults, notice there's no profanity here, is a blog written by Pam Saxelby, an educator and mother of three healthy adult children. I'm glad she said that. Um, The blog is a running commentary on how not to mess up your children too much. Whether you're a concerned parent or a tormented child, these stories can teach you something about life, parenting, and growing up. Check it out at http colon double backslash saxelbypam.blogspot.com. Thanks, Mom, for being my mom and for sponsoring today's show. Um, uh, So today on Cutting the Curd, apropos of Mother's Day, we're going to dive into the world of milk with my guest, John Bunting, who knows more about the the dairy industry than just about anybody that I know. Um, The world of dairy that I know through my business, selling farmstead cheese and other fresh dairy products, is a far cry from the reality of most uh, dairy farmers' reality in the United States. The farms that I work with work very hard, but they're able to make a living doing it because they sell their products pretty much directly to consumers um, through my shop, but it's a very short distribution chain. But uh, most dairy farmers in the United States work very hard and don't even make enough money to break even every year. Um, and we're going to talk with John to see what's behind our national dairyscape and, uh, and just sort of talk about problems and possible solutions. Um, so thanks for joining us today, John. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. You sound like you have a great mother. <laughs> I do. I'm, I'm really lucky. She's a, she's, she's a good one. Great. She didn't blink when I told her that I wanted to go work on a dairy farm after I graduated from art school. Ah, that's wonderful. <laughs> Uh, um, well, so can you tell us a little bit about um, your background and how you came to be involved uh, with the dairy industry and, uh, and uh, yeah, just about your background in general? Well, um, see, my background in general ends up being so terribly eclectic, but for years I have owned cows and uh, been a dairy farmer. And uh, back in the 80s, I realized that I didn't know how the milk in my bulk tank, uh, where it's stored until it's picked up, 
was priced, even though uh, people use generic terms like supply and demand and so forth. Uh, so I began this quest to find out what was happening. I also noticed that uh, farm after farm uh, was disappearing. You know, right now, if you drive through rural New York, it looks like a war zone. And that's uh, primarily because we have been the third largest dairy state in the country. And uh, so dairy uh, farms are terribly critical to the rural landscape. Uh, they disappeared. So Now, you're in Delaware County, is that right? Yes, um, which is the western foothills of the Catskills. It uh, touches Pennsylvania in the south uh, and is the headwaters of the Delaware River. The uh, water that is uh, drunk in New York City uh, in large part comes from the uh, Delaware River watershed. Um, that also and, makes that area particularly prime for dairying, right? Because the land does have a lot of water. It's, it's great grazing land. Well, yes. Um, you know, the people that originally settled this county came from uh, Scotland, victims of what was known as the Enclosures Act. In other words, they didn't come here willingly. They came primarily to America as indentured servants, uh, worked off their indentureship after about 13 years, and saved up some money and, and uh, came here to buy what was then relatively cheap land, which was, uh, as they say, the western foothills of the Catskills. Our barn is at 1,600 feet elevation, and our top meadow is at uh, 2,200 feet of elevation. So, you know, it, it's, it's really um, like some of where the finer cheeses in uh, Europe are produced or in alpine regions or in uh, mountainous, semi-mountainous regions. So that's what Delaware County is. I have a book that was written in 1923 simply titled The Cow, and uh, the author begins uh, talking about the fertile plain, primarily the Mohawk Valley, winding its way up through to Delaware County, uh, the kingdom of the cow. And 75 years ago, the uh, Delaware County was the lead dairy county of the country. Now, let me just, I, I just want to say this right now, because I find this very interesting, that the original settlers of this region came because of the Enclosures Act, which, of course, in Europe meant um, the enclosing of the common, right, which was the common land designated for farming for people who weren't landowners to bring their animals to graze or, um, you know, to pursue their own small agricultural endeavors. When they were no longer allowed to do that, then they were kind of out of luck. So those people moved to, uh, they moved to northern New York, or rural New York, they moved to Virginia, they moved to a whole host of places in the, in the States. Um, but I think it's very interesting now that you're talking about how that, that county became kingdom of the cow, and 75 years later, it's another question of land use, as you were saying uh, when oh, we spoke absolutely. earlier this week, that is that is causing it not to be the kingdom of the cow anymore. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and I think the Enclosure Acts, which uh, began in the early days of the uh, Industrial Revolution, and um, you know, what they really were trying to do is make the rural landscape in Scotland safe for the sheep and unsafe for people. And uh, people were given approximately half an hour to leave their homes, and then they were evicted. They went to the cities, became uh, part of Dickens Tales, or they came down to the seaside, to the docks, and literally sold themselves in, to get passage to the New World, where many, most of the people that came to Delaware County landed in uh, Connecticut, and they were literally auctioned off 
could not leave their masters who purchased them for 13 years. It's, it's an important part of American history that is not well understood, but it basically was the, the whole concept of absentee ownership of um, land and, and land tenure. Um, and, and, you know, people do not have much of a historical concept of land tenure. And for thousands upon thousands and thousands of years, land was held in common. And the idea of ownership, private ownership of land, is a relatively recent thing in the history of humanity. Uh, and we still have in this country things like the Boston Commons, which were common pastures. So um, those concepts uh, of common ownership of land, people no longer even think about. And, and what has happened here in Delaware County is that as the, to, to some extent, as the milk price in real dollars diminished, uh, farmers were having difficulty making a, a go of it because most of the farms, by geography alone uh, and the lay of the land, had to be relatively small and... and uh, because so like, un them. unlike the Midwest or the West Coast, where you have these giant sort of sweeping plains where you can um, contain hundreds or even thousands or even tens of thousands of cows, in uh, exactly. Delaware County, you have these hilly parcels, ideal for probably 50 cows at a time. That would be probably perfect, 35 to 50 cows. Uh, the problem with all of that is <laughs> that uh, you, you cannot put together a beginning dairy farm uh, business plan, which includes the purchase of land, uh, and, and, and take it to a bank and make a go of it. And, and part of that is caused by uh, the whole concept of land tenure in that 63% of the parcels of land in Delaware County are owned as second properties by people whose primary residence is in New York metropolitan area. So, uh, once again, uh, Delaware County, which has very low income as a county goes, uh, ends up being the victims, if you will, of absentee uh, land ownership. Um, and it's really kind of a shame because at the same time, the very same people that um, buy and purchase uh, these second homes uh, really are great advocates of, of regional food production. But uh, by the mere fact uh, of purchasing a second home, uh, they prohibit that from happening. You know, in Switzerland, uh, you can be a multi-multi-millionaire as the uh, Formula One race car driver shoemaker on 40 acres of farmland in Switzerland and wanted to build a house on it. He could not do it. Could really? Could not do it. Really? That's exactly right, you know, because Switzerland, Switzerland sees agriculture as part of their national defense. Uh, another way of looking at that is the food supply is part of national defense. And we have become so globalized That's... that it's very easy, I'm sorry, for people to think that you can lose uh, a food supply that is regional, local, and it doesn't matter because somewhere, someplace on earth, some poor person will be willing to supply the food to put on the shelf so the consumer can buy it. Well, that's very interesting because um, as we spoke about earlier in the week when we were kind of talking about ideas for this show, a lot of the reason that um, rural farmland has become 
uh, things or has become subdivisions or things other than rural farmland um, was partially based on government policy designed to uh, give people different sort of tax credits or tax incentives to move their farms elsewhere further away from cities. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is that, you know, it's, it's a sort of matter of, and I mean, I don't know, I've been thinking a lot about this lately, but it is a matter of, of course, national security to have a pretty well-developed food supply. Um, I, I, I mean, um, I was talking with somebody the other day who was talking about, uh, about China. And, you know, of course, everyone's talking about China these days because they're <laughs> making such a splash in the world economy and everything. But they said that 85% of their population are still farmers and less than 2% of the U.S. population, and you correct me if I'm wrong because I'm sure you know the statistic better than I do, um, are farmers. And so if you're talking about um, national security, hello, that's pretty, uh, you know, that's a pretty big uh, gap in, th- you know, we're, we're putting a lot of our trust in, in places and in people that we have really no real connection to. Exactly. I think it's actually a little bit less than 2% now. And, you know, most people in America are two to three generations away from uh, producing their own food. And uh, many people might have a garden and appreciate all that goes into it. Uh, but you know, I recently was in Chicago and had a cab ride with a fellow from Ethiopia uh, who reminded me how much effort goes into simply eating in countries like Ethiopia, you know, uh, gathering your food, gathering your water and all of that, things that Americans simply take for granted. I, I don't think... I don't think we should so much take it for granted, and I do believe that you could make a very logical policy uh, statement saying that the public has an interest in their food supply, uh, i.e., dairy <laughs> and dairy products. Absolutely, uh, it goes beyond that. That really goes beyond their consciousness. There, there's a public's interest, I think, in a regionally dispersed, resilient food supply, and and we don't have that. And no. what we were talking about earlier, um, you know, had to do with the. Uh, real estate around uh, suburban Los Angeles in which um, many of the farms sold for millions of dollars and IRS tax code 1031 allowed those people to take those millions of dollars without paying any capital gains, move up to uh, Central Valley, Tulare area or New Mexico or Idaho and and start farms of 5,000 or 10,000 cows. So and, and those farms, of course, which are the, the CAFO operations, which now are some of the biggest polluters on the planet, um, producing tons of methane gas from all the manure pits and, 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 com- and contaminating water supplies and all these things. So, um, you know, the sort of, I don't know, ill effects go on and on. Oh, yeah. Um, but, you know, th- there is a, um, a 74 a point seven four correlation between the, the real estate value in L.A. and um, around L.A., Riverside and San Bernardino County, and milk production nationally. And one thing that isn't talked about with the number of farms that are exiting now with the current low milk price is there will not be that uh, external capital, you know, coming from real estate. Uh, to boost milk production back up. And so if it, it goes low, it, it will be extremely difficult. But there's, there's plenty of money in, in the marketing chain 
to provide farms with, with uh, good, reasonable middle class uh, incomes. Um, I have a friend in northern Vermont, and maybe some of your listeners might be familiar with Jack and Ann Laser. Uh, they have Butterworks Farm in. Um, Westfield, uh, Vermont. Right, and, right around uh, the corner from one of my favorite cheesemakers, Lainey Fondeller of Lazy Lady Farm. Oh, I know her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She buys some <laughs> of their milk, actually, in the wintertime. Right. She's, she's wonderful. She's off the grid. You know, no... Wind no, and solar-powered uh, like, farm, certified organic cheesemaker. And maker. a windmill. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jack and Ann actually have a, a windmill as well, but... You know, they, they, they have 11, 12, 13 employees... That are paid reasonably good wages. Wow. Some are even paid whole health care costs. Um, and, and this is on a herd of 38, generally 38 jerseys. Sometimes it's 37, sometimes it's 40. Wow. Well, now listen, but, I'm so sorry. I have to interrupt for two seconds. Um, we have to just take right a quick ahead. short break. But when we come back, I want to talk about why that farm model exists in Vermont and sort of the hopeful parts about how we can get back to those kinds of um, sustainable small farms in the very near future hopefully stay with us on cutting the curd we'll be back in just a second Welcome back to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Ann Saxelby, and my guest today is John Bunting, a milker of cows and dairy farmer advocate. Um, you should add to this. Uh, I'm not sure all the different good works that you do, but I know that you're involved in many things. Um, well, I have my own dairy blog. I should probably put in a, absolutely. a line for that. If you just go to Google and type my name in, John Bunting, it'll be the first or second thing. What's uh, the name of your blog? Uh, well, it's John Bunting's Dairy Journal dot blogspot. Uh, but if you just type in my name, you'll get there pretty fast. And uh, as I did, uh, yeah, it, it's a it's a wonderful source. And you also contribute to other people's uh, blogs, um, notably the Milkweed, isn't that right? The Milkweed is one yeah, of those. Yeah, the Milkweed is actually a physical print publication. Um, you know, Pete Harden, who owns the Milkweed, uh, which carries no advertisement at all, we pretty much are able to say whatever we want to say without worrying about losing advertisers. So, you know, I tell people it's the only investigative uh, journal in all of dairy farming. It's probably the most uh, subscribed to dairy publication in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, large numbers of law firms, needless to say, <laughs> subscribed to the Milkweed. Large number of processors, because... You know, most of the trade publications are really sort of uh, self-promoting of certain agendas, and, uh, you know, so they tend to find things out that they uh, don't tend to find out. In a recent issue, we uh, listed the uh, incomes or the salaries paid to some of the people that uh, theoretically are paid to help dairy farmers' income. And, like, and it like uh, what, are you allowed to divulge any of that? I mean, this is a, also an independent station. Oh, yeah. Station, you know, uh, with commercial farmers, every hundred weight of milk, which is how milk is sold by 100 pounds, 
which is about 11.62 gallons, um, the, the farmers have to contribute. It's mandated by law to contribute to a what's called a checkoff program or dairy promotion program, which in theory is supposed to promote the consumption of dairy products, uh, which, which I think in today's uh, uh, world, I don't know whether we really need to be promoting dairy products or simply getting people to eat quality, uh, whatever it is. But in any event, the CEO of that program, which you have to realize that this is 2009-2010 in which dairy farmers are suffering just massively financially. There's you know, not only depressions but suicides and foreclosures. All kinds of horrible things are happening. This guy makes 700000 a year. That's ridiculous. That the, is uh, absolutely ridiculous. Right, <laughs> you Un- know, I mean, uh, like unconscionable. It's it's crazy. Absolutely, and 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 that is dairy farmers' money uh, that is paying that seven hundred thousand dollar a year salary. So, and, and you know, then, needless to say, that's that's a, a largely talked about thing, and it's the kind of thing that you're not about to find in most. Uh, general milk dairy publications I, I just really really quickly i just want to this is a sort of a goofy aside but um i know that in, in france they're a lot more politically vocal about um agricultural issues than we are in this country and um i know that the, the dairy prices there have not been stellar lately as well and as a protest uh, i know that a lot of farmers actually uh, got together and dumped their milk to signify you know the injustice that was being done to them by the government and i can only imagine what Seven hundred thousand dollars of milk would look like um, going down the drain. That's a good way of seeing that. Uh, yeah, and and what a lot of people don't realize, and and really, it's a economic organizational problem. When you reduce the powerful players down to a handful, uh, they really need this sort of centralized pricing system so that. At various times, uh, you'll find a near-perfect correlation between the price in Europe and the price here in this country. They, they may not be the same, but uh, they, they rise and fall the same. And, and that's because farm milk price, in spite of all the smoke screens about it, in spite of people thinking it's complicated beyond belief, it really is determined by a handful, and I mean a small handful of traders, on the uh, Chicago Mercantile Exchange. And, can, you, uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, I'm from Chicago, and I've been by the Board of Trade, and I've seen the little, you know, flashing signs, milk, hogs, and it goes up and it goes down. <laughs> yes. Well, it's on uh, Wacker Drive, South Wacker Drive, I believe, and, and I was recently in Chicago, and I asked some native there if that was a, a person or an activity that that street was named after. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and... and and really, what I've been to the CME and I've met with top executives. Their excuse is that it's not their fault that farm milk is priced from the CME. Well, of course, it's not their fault, but they certainly are the benefactors. It's really, uh, and I'll say this very clearly, USDA has a lot of very good people, but as an agency, it tends to be a rogue agency. And USDA attaches their formula to this in thin market that is thin beyond belief. And when I say thin beyond belief, the price can go up or down without any product literally changing hands. 
um, non-fat dry milk, which you know the consumer knows is powdered milk, is traded on the CME theoretically. They began trading that on in '98, the fall of '98. Between the fall of '98 and May 23rd of 2008, exactly one load of powdered milk had been traded. That wow. is a thin market. It is, it is unreal. Uh, so. And so basically milk, just to bring it down to earth for a second, because it's so bizarre, milk, which is a very real thing, which is produced by a cow, to, you know, it's produced constantly, but is, is harvested by the farmer twice a day. It is a very real and is a very perishable commodity yet it, it becomes this uh, it becomes sort of diluted powdered process emulsified and all these and all this crap pardon my language <laughs> that allows the milk price to you know just remain what it is instead of keeping it grounded in reality and those controls which were i believe put in place in the 30s or, or around there were based to were put in to protect farmers um, to allow them a consistent price for their milk, even if there were fluctuations in the market, because they knew that those cows were going to produce it, were going to produce milk regardless of the economic reality of the country. But now it's become this just completely backwards uh, equation, and it just doesn't make doesn't make any sense. Yeah, well, going back to the 30s, you know, that was a very tough time. There was a significant, maybe a third of the population in this country, working population, was unemployed. And the Roosevelt administration and others uh, honestly realized that if they didn't do something about agriculture, uh, that maybe the person that lost his job in the shirt factory in New York City uh, would not have any place to go, and he he might start a riot in New York City. So if he could go back to the home farm uh, and and have some uh, square meals a day and a roof over his head, it, it was really uh, in the public's interest to have that happen. So a lot of it really had to do with uh, making certain that farmers had adequate income. And they looked at many, many means of pricing milk. And really, if you think about capitalism or the market system, the selling price of anything should be the cost of producing the goods uh, plus a profit. That, that's what anyone will tell you. That's what the textbooks will tell you the selling price ought to be. Right. So what, what they ended up with as a result of years of looking at this thing with dairy is they, they developed the concept of parity, which was based upon the cost of inputs. And that kept the farm and milk price rising, relatively speaking, at the general rate of inflation. The CPI for dairy... CPI means what? Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Consumer Price Index. What the (laughs) the public is paying for the products they're buying moved at the relative general rate of inflation. Uh, And I, I, I recently put together a graph, which will be in the next issue of the Milkweed, from 1935 right up through the present time. And uh, right up until, ni- until Ronald Reagan was president, the early days, as a matter of fact, it was his first official act after being shot by John Hinckley to sign a, a law which eliminated what was called parity pricing and and put 100% of the milk pricing power in the hands of the buyers of milk. Wow. And, and it's just an atrocious thing. <laughs> and and most, uh, most dairy farmers voted for Ronald Reagan not once but twice. Wow. Wow. 
Oh my goodness. So, um, all right. Well, we actually, I've, uh, I've spoken with our producer and our engineer, and I know that we have a lot more to talk about um, than our usual 30-minute show. So if you're okay with it, I think we'll take a quick break and come back for another 15-minute segment and talk about how we can back ourselves out of this, uh, this crazy scenario and maybe start to put some sense and some reality back into our dairy industry. Um, so stay with us on Cutting the Curd. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd for an unprecedented third segment. Um, I'm your host, Ann Saxelby. Our show today is produced by Jack Inslee, engineered by Nat Wiener, and sponsored by my mom, Pam Saxelby, who writes a fabulous, funny blog about how to raise your kids and uh, you know, and the challenges that lie therein. HTTP colon double backsplash or double backsplash double backslash saxelbypam.blogspot.com my guest today is john bunting and we're talking about the crazy world of dairy and how we can get back to a more normal sane reality of dairy um so john how can we take the control away from the chicago mercantile exchange and put it back into the hands of people like the lasers of butterwork or butterworks farm in vermont what do you see as some possible solutions and some uh, beacons of hope in the dairy industry well let me say that jack and ann laser uh they were the first certified organic farm in vermont uh, everything that uh, their cows eat, they raise. It's just truly a, a perfect example of everything that anyone wants in agriculture and dairy farming. But by the same token, uh, it, it's been the result of years of, of an effort in it and, and work that most people are not willing to uh, put into it, uh, having to uh, produce a product with, which is primarily yogurt and uh, marketing and distributing it. Most farmers are very happy to forget about what happens to their milk or not think about it uh, the minute they, it, it leaves their farm, and it's a, a terribly critical thing. And You know, there, there's a Supreme Court ruling back in the 30s, Nibia versus something or other, I forget who it was, uh, and they said milk is closed in public interest. And that is so absolutely true, and it's become very politicized. Yeah. And what most people don't realize is that here in New York State, um, we've got basically a dysfunctional political system. A recent article in Harper's Magazine said that the New York um, political system was the most dysfunctional of the entire country. I don't know whether that's exactly true, but it's worth reading on yeah. anyone's part. Because... Really what they're saying is that it was bossism, and I've said for years that you understand New York politics by conceiving it as three men in a budget. That's what it comes down to. <laughs> well, Washington, D.C. is not much different, you know? Well, uh, you, have, you have these committee heads, and uh, to get change in D.C., which is absolutely necessary, you have to get past these committee heads, which is pretty darn hard to do. And... For instance, um, 
I, I was on Kirsten Gillibrand, uh, who is now New York Senator, a Congresswoman's um, Ag Policy Advising Committee. And in the very first meeting, I suggested that you couldn't understand dairy without seeing it from an antitrust perspective. And her eyes lit up, and she said she'd be perfectly willing to hold uh, antitrust hearings in the House Ag Committee, which she was on. Wow. Well, it didn't happen. <laughs> and it didn't happen because Colin Peterson is head of the House Ag Committee. And who's Colin and Peterson? Colin Peterson is congressman from um, Minnesota. Okay. And, and he is hunting fishing buddies with the former head of Dairy Farmers of America, this massively large, corrupted <laughs> co-op that uh, shouldn't even legally be a co-op. They're being sued well, let me... in multiple places. Uh, a, a new lawsuit uh, was just launched in the Northeast, naming uh, DFA and, and Dairy Marketing Service as part of it. Uh, but nothing can get past Colin Peterson. Well, let me just say for two quick seconds, I took a trip up to Sullivan County a couple weeks ago, and the dairy farmers that I was chatting with, um, when I asked them who they sold their milk to, they said a couple of different names of co-ops, but in the end, all those co-ops were owned by DFA. So, exactly. Yeah, yeah, they are. And and it's very kind of, yeah, shaded, and, and there are nuances of, you know, they, they make you seem like you've got this... Uh, you know this this more sort of local personal co-op, but in the end, you don't. It is this uh, powerful, gigantic entity that, uh, like you said, should probably should be subjected to antitrust uh, lawsuits. Absolutely. Yeah. So you know, uh, our our other senator Schumer uh, just came out uh, because uh, Christine Varney, who is head of the antitrust division of the Department of Justice which, by the way, is holding hearings. Uh, they will hold uh, hearings on dairy in Madison, Wisconsin, on June 25th. And that's an important uh, step, really. I think that's possibly a good step. Hopefully it will end up being worthwhile doing. But she made some uh, statement about uh, taking away the uh, antitrust exemption that co-ops have enjoyed through what's called the Capra-Volstead Act. And, my God, you know, these co-ops are just... Uh, descending upon Washington with all their lobbyists, and, and um, Chuck Schumer just came out and said that he supported full uh, Capra-Volstead exemptions for these co-ops. Well, if you take the example of DFA, nobody can figure their books out. They, they are being sued in so many cases. Um, they are partners in all kinds of organ organizations that the farmers don't share in. Uh, they, they settled with the Commodity Future Trading Act for manipulating the price on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, which was not to the farmer's benefit. They, they settled for a $12 million fine in December uh, 2008. And they basically are the only show in town in the Northeast. It's very funny. <laughs> it, re it reminds me, you know, we're talking about... Um, I don't know, that we're drawing different sort of uh, strains of, of similarity between dairy and other things. And I was thinking a lot in our conversation about, you know, Wall Street and the recent um, corruption that we've experienced there. And it's like, you know, the, the Wall Street has been deregulated. 
supposedly and and put in the hands of um you know of these corrupt business people i don't see why our dairy industry shouldn't be deregulated but in the way that gives the power and gives the you know uh that gives the power back to the the farmers um you know because usda and all these people are obviously not in the position to help anybody right now well, yeah, and, and that is essentially, and I think because I tell people that farm milk pricing is like religion was in the Middle Ages. It, it is made so complex, <laughs> and, and most people are illiterate <laughs> relative to the whole thing. But you have to go to the high priest uh, or just leave it to the high priest and, and hope that you'll, your milk soul will get to heaven. But, you know, what, they, they're presently working on the next farm bill. And what they're advocating, the volatility, the up and down of milk price is just absolutely artificial. You know, if you were able to look inside the CME every day, which very few people are, you can see that a handful of traders are doing that. National Milk Producers Federation, which Jerry Kozak, who is the CEO of that, claims to represent 80% of the dairy farmers in the country. His salary is a mere 650000 What they're <laughs> What they're proposing is, is a government-sponsored, uh, but the farmers would still have to pay something, insurance program to deal with the volatility. And when the volatility is absolutely artificially created, <laughs> what are we talking about here? Sure, you know? yeah, they're, I'm sure their insurance policy is really going to do a great job. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I hate to say it, but, you know, I mean, insurance is is a critical thing. It's the one industry segment that didn't have any failures during the Depression. It's, a, you know, the insurance companies calculate the risk, add their profit, and that's what the premium is. And, and again, it's, a, it's an important thing relative to family-sized farming of all sites. In normal years that are profitable for the typical dairy farmer, it takes all of the income from 25 cows to pay for health insurance. Wow. I mean, one of the first things that could happen that would help would be if, if we had uh, a real health care system in this country, which, again, what appears to be happening is something that the insurance companies will benefit from. Yeah. I didn't mean to get horribly political with you. But no, no, it's it's absolutely hey. necessary. But so wait, as long as we're being political, let's talk about Vermont again. Let's talk about Vermont and why Vermont is different from New York. How does Vermont work politically that allows their dairy farmers to ha- enjoy such a um, better, I, I think, just more opportunities, more resources, um, and better, uh, you know, but more profits than, than New York State dairy farms? Well, that's fairly much true, uh, and uh, I think part of it is that uh, Vermont does not have this sort of upstate downstate thing that New York does. You know, you you, you get when Chuck Schumer was a congressman uh, representing metropolitan New York, he was all for the cheaper the milk price, the better it would be. Now, as senator representing rural milk, you know, he, he may advocate that the farmers need uh, this and that and so forth, but. You know, in Vermont, a typical uh, meeting of the legislature, you'll go in there and you'll see people with flannel sh- uh, shirts on, you know. There's hardly hardly a person in the Vermont legislature that doesn't know a dairy farmer personally or related to a dairy farmer or perhaps even a dairy farmer. Yeah. So 
you know, really what we're talking about here, Anne, is a matter of uh, information, and I don't even want to use the term education, but the, the people in the legislature in, in Vermont are informed people relative to the agriculture that exists in Vermont. By and large, the people in, in the New York State legislature are not truly informed people. And so how do they turn that into action? How do they turn that into results for Vermont dairy farmers? Are there government programs? Are there grants? Are there? Do they help them with capital costs, starting up new operations? Um, how do they help the government? Well, I can, uh, you know, right now um, they're, they're talking about losing a significant number of farms in Vermont. So, you know, we can't talk right now about that. But as you know, um, uh, Lainey Fondelier is a small uh, farmer that produces a very wonderful cheese. And, you know, the, the, the difference between the approval process in Vermont for a small-scale cheesemaker and the approval process in New York State is just light years different, you know? Interesting. And, and, and Vermont wanted to kind of clamp down early on in, on Laney, uh, and they had a hearing, and 250 people showed up to support her, you know? Wow. <laughs> That just doesn't happen in, in New York State. And, and New York State Department of Ag and Markets really sees their job more or less as a state trooper would be. It's to stop something from happening. Whereas, you know, a couple of uh, commissioners ago, they had a guy who was head of the dairy division uh, who who told me at one time he literally had gone to the bank for more than one time to ask the bank to loan money to farmers who wanted to start making their milk into a dairy product. Mm -hmm. That has never once happened in New York State. Not once. Wow. Yeah, and, and part of it is the paranoia that people have. Oh, well, if we have this little guy making things, you know. Uh, oh, yeah, God forbid someone touches our, our food with their hands, you know, like that would just uh, be the worst. We have to have make sure it's made in a sterile factory where, you know, every everything's done by machines. And if there's one glitch, then everything goes, you know, straight, straight to hell. <laughs> yeah, but, and there's paranoia about raw milk, and, and, and you must see it relative to raw milk cheese. But, you know, the fact of the matter is... Every six minutes, a person in this country dies from some medically induced accident or infection. <laughs> you know that uh, it, the that may be that may be the result of them eating some eating processed food to begin with. <laughs> exactly, uh, you know. But the government never says stay away from hospitals. Don't go to hospitals. And, and I don't think you've got a clock that is uh, graduated in, in, in enough increments to say how often anyone even gets sick from a uh, raw milk dairy product. So let me let me say this. I was thinking about possible solutions for this problem, and I was thinking that the main gaps for me, as far as I see it, are in distribution and in entrepreneurship and, and a little bit in government assistance for, for small farms. Um, government backing small-scale local small scale local processing and things like that. So possible solutions that I see. One is raw milk sales, which we talked about, um, because, uh, you know, a farmer being able to sell raw milk from their farm is um, allows them to capture all of that profit instead of putting it into the co-op. 
However, the problem with that is that the farmer then has to fill, fill that gap of distribution and how to get that product to market. I was just, as I said, in Sullivan County a couple weeks ago, and we visited a wonderful farm, um, and I, I'm kicking myself. I can't remember the name right now, but I will, I will update it on my blog, um, that is licensed to sell raw milk. And they sell about 20 gallons of raw milk a week. And that kind of a, a, a solution, though they've done everything right, and though they're legal and they're selling raw milk off the farm, that is not an economic solution for their farm. Um, so there needs to be, uh, if, if, you know, raw milk is to be a solution, there also has to be some component of distribution that's going to be included in that. Another solution that I see is collective processing. Um, uh, we've been talking a lot recently, uh, uh, Patrick Martins and I, about starting some sort of a, a creamery in Sullivan County that would um, collect milk from local dairy farms and turn it into uh, a simple cheese, um, a simple but delicious cheese that could reach market at around you know eight dollars a pound for the consumer. Um, and I think that you know having a small scale processing facility or many small scale processing facilities in New York actually could be another solution. Um, progressive land use and farmland conservation initiatives. Again, this is, you probably know tons more than I do about this, but the government sort of taking control a little bit of how our land is used and, and putting farming, uh, first for once as opposed to last. I think that could help a lot. And then finally more markets. I think we have, we're lucky in New York city that we have the green market as a, a place to go get great, fresh, locally grown seasonal food, but more local regional and public markets, I think, need to be developed. Um, there's a, a great project in New York right now called New Amsterdam Public, which is a market that's trying to revive the South Street Seaport, which used to be a thriving public market, um, to as a, as a place for people to sell their goods. Um, I think that, you know, the burden, like you were saying before, people like the Lasers are in, at Butterworks Farm are incredibly progressive, but in building the kind of business that they do, they take on all the burden of producing the product, of distributing the product, of marketing the product. And there are steps in that that can be that can be sort of taken out if we kind of revive all of those things along the way. Collective processing, creating markets where purveyors sell the products, um, and giving farmers, you know, just more or people giving people more incentive to farm by, uh, you know, get, making that land available to them. Um, that's my that's my spiel. Those are my. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you've said that very well, Anne. And in Sullivan County, and I really should look at it a bit more. Rick Bishop, who used to be with the Watershed Ag Council, literally put together a uh, portable uh, milk processing thing uh, in in a trailer basis, which farmers could borrow for a certain amount of time to do some sort of market thing to see if they want to progress any further with that. And I really should look into that a bit further. He's Wizzy. Uh, Sullivan County Planning Department, I believe. Yeah, the Cheesemobile. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right. And, and uh, you know, so we need that. We need uh, uh, one more thing I would add. We need a land-grant university that is Cornell in New York State. Thank you. Uh, Absolutely. Yes. That is friendly to the ideas that you just put forth instead of antagonistic. Uh, and or, you know, just teaching people the industrial way, get big or get out, which has pretty much been the, the party line for however many years now. 
Yeah, well, one-third of the income of Cornell comes from the public, and two-thirds they have to go out and find. And so you really have to look at that uh, metric there and see, is that really the kind of thing we want if we had more public support of Cornell? And the public should have a voice as to uh, what direction that that should be going in, uh, as opposed to, you know, Cornell is was the lead um, land grant university in developing uh, bovine growth hormone or GMO bovine growth hormone. So there's an example of Monsanto uh, co-opting a university. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. There you go. I think your 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 thoughts are right on target. Uh, and uh, but you know I think the public too needs to become much more informed about their food supply system. There there are no sort of silver bullets to any of this, and yet I think uh, we are approaching something. If it's not uh, crisis level, it's certainly going to be chaotic at, at some point. I and think. The public, oh, go ahead. <laughs> the the public can can do well. To inform themselves, not not necessarily in terms of solutions, but exactly what is happening. You know, and if you go to third world countries, and I know because I know a young woman who's uh, moved with her parents when she was two to uh, this country, and uh, they took her mother to a supermarket on on the first day they were going to go shopping for something. She took one click quick look around the supermarket and said, "Get me out of here! This isn't food." <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. what we've done here in America is little by little, the public has really um, lost the sense as to what real food is about. So that would help if uh, the public sets about informing themselves relative to real food. Well, let's. I, I'm I'm sorry to say that we have we're kind of running out of time here today, but I, uh, that's a hopeful note to end on. And I think that you know. Being more involved, being more informed, following the Vermont model of getting 250 people to the, you know, to the state legislature to help people like Lainey Fondeller, you know, make her cheese operation a viable and real real thing. Um, that that's a that's a great thing and and food in the end is uh well it's about of course nourishment and survival but it's also about community and uh, i think the more we we build that up um, the more hopeful our local food picture will be for the future so thank you so much for taking the time to uh chat with me this afternoon and i hope we can uh we can have you back on for uh subsequent shows it would be my pleasure All right, so thank you so much, and we'll see you again next Sunday on Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelbeef.